From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. At the Undisciplined Science Show, we introduce you to two scientists working on the hard and soft sides of research. And then we introduce them to each other. Today's meetup, a psychologist who studies smiles and a geneticist who studies morning sickness. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today on the show, we're talking about feelings. Emotional ones, physical ones, good ones, bad ones. And we're asking what's going on deeper inside of us, biologically, psychologically, when we're feeling something. Joining us today is Marlena Fazo, whose recent studies suggest a genetic cause for morning sickness, and Jared Martin, whose work demonstrates that not all smiles are equal. First, let's talk about smiling. A smile can be meant to convey warmth and happiness. Some smiles, though, can be just, well, they can just be mean. Jared Martin wanted to know more about the science behind smiles, and the results of his work published recently in Scientific Reports show that very subtle differences in the way you feel changes the way you smile. Jared Martin, welcome to Undisciplined. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Okay, so smiling is such a well, it's just what we do, right? It's like breathing or blinking. How, how did you decide to take this really common thing and look at it deeper? I think you actually, in part, just answered my question. It is a common thing, and that's why it's partly so interesting to us. We smile every day, and we smile in any number of contexts. You see people smiling when you're walking down the hallway, at weddings and at funerals, and it, it seems like because there are so many different contexts that people smile in and different feelings that are associated with smiles, that they shouldn't all be the same thing. So we wanted to explore that variability and try to understand it. Do you think that when things are common like that, we tend to overlook them and, and not think about them from a scientific point of view? I certainly think that people take the little things that happen on a daily basis for granted, but that's where the meat and potatoes of, of psychological science is, trying to unpack the things that we, we just do on a daily basis for some deeper meaning behind them. And, and what was the clue that led you to this research? I mean, before we get into the nitty-gritty, what was the thing that you went... I mean, were you walking across campus one day and somebody gave you kind of a, a nasty smirk? <laughs> what was the thing that made you go, I, I got to study smiles? It was a question that, that came about through a combination of just personal experiences, but also reading through the literature and seeing that if you're looking for a positive expression, it's always a smile. If you're looking for positive feedback, it's always a smile. And that didn't seem to make sense to us. We wanted to probe that assumption that smiles are always this homogenous category of positive feedback. Okay, so to set up this study, you gathered almost 100 college students, male college students, I gather, and, and you gave them a short impromptu speaking assignment, and you told them they were being judged over a webcam, but there was, there was kind of a trick there, right? Can you explain this? Yeah, so it actually, it, it, the trick began as soon as the participant walked into the room. So um, participants came in, and they, they thought they were participating in a study with another male participant, but in fact, that other guy was someone who worked for us. So he was a, a college-age kid who we had trained to make the, the different smile expressions that we um, have been researching. So we can talk about the different kinds. We make the general argument that there are at least three different kinds of smiles in the world, and they're signals that we send to other people in order to regulate their behavior and their feelings. So one thing we can use smiles to do is to reward or reinforce someone else's behavior. So if your kid does something that you like, you reinforce that behavior because it's good for both of you. So you show this happy, open-mouthed, bared teeth 
just grin. It's a, it's a very simple expression that we see all the time. And we call that a reward smile because it helps us to reward other people for their behavior. Another thing that smiles can do is we can use them to affiliate. We can use them to smooth interactions, to show others that we're non-threatening, and that we want to interact with them socially in a positive way. This is like the subway so, smile, okay. right? Like I, I see That's somebody exactly on the subway? So uh, that's exactly what it is. I call it the hallway smile, but it's the same idea. You're walking down um, a crowded area. You see someone you kind of know, a colleague of yours, but you're not great friends. You don't want to grab a beer, but you want to show them that you're not going to harm them or that you don't feel ill will toward them. So you press and stretch your lips in front of your teeth, and it's just a, a polite sort of greeting and appeasement function for the smile. The last thing that we think that smiles can do is to be used as a signal of superiority and to navigate social hierarchy. So it's a, it's a signal that we show to people when we want to put them in their social place by showing them that we feel better than them, that we feel superior to them, that they're somehow beneath us, that we feel disdain or um, certain sort of derision. It has elements of contempt and social disgust on the face, so it's often an asymmetrical, sort of lopsided, sneery, smirky type of expression. This is the uh, Martin Shrikelly smile, right? I think that he probably does that quite a, quite a bit. Yeah. So, so you trained a research assistant to do this? I mean, did you pull this person out of the drama department? Or In theory, everyone should be able to make them, right? Because if they actually exist in the world, then we're all using them at some point in our lives. So we had two relatively personable, outgoing young men in our lab, and we trained them and we videotaped the good ones. So the ones that were particularly solidly matching um, onto our, what our, our previous research says those smiles should look like. We had our, our research assistant meet a, another person, and these two people came into the lab thinking that they were going to participate in this research. One of them obviously was working for us, but the other one was the real participant and did not know that this whole setup was made such that this participant met this new person who was our confederate um, and was in the situation that they believed that they were actually being judged. So once the two men met each other, we separated them and took the participant down to a different room, and he had to give a short speech on various just benign questions, what his favorite food was, what he likes to do for fun, etc., things that were not particularly stressful. And at various points throughout that speech, he received feedback about his performance in the form of one of the three different kinds of smiles that we had pre-recorded. So those expressions were believable. The participant had met that other person, and they were coming back to them in real time over Skype. So it felt very real and very visceral. Right. And, and so throughout this process, you're giving them this feedback. And as you're doing that, and they think that they're being assessed in their speaking assignment, you're taking heart measurements and saliva samples. What, what are those telling you? Basically, we were, we were trying to assess the extent to which the feedback about someone's performance in the form of one of those smiles altered the stress response of the speaker. Because public speaking, as all of us, I'm sure, know, is really stressful. It's one of one of the largest fears that people have, actually. But the, the way that we set up the, the experiment was such that the questions were benign enough to not really overload the stress system, but certainly just being in that context is going to activate people to a large enough extent that you can see differences. And our hope was that the feedback would modulate that response, and it did. And what did you see to that? I mean, what did you see in the heart measurements, and what did you see in the cortisol? So our, our chief findings were in the cortisol data, so cortisol is a hormone that's particularly responsive to social evaluation. So when people are being socially evaluated, their cortisol spikes. And so what we found was that compared to people who received 
reward, the, you know, that sort of reinforcing signal, or affiliative, the appeasing, non-threatening signal, people who received dominant smiles as feedback showed a larger cortisol response and one that took longer to return to baseline. So we're, we're showing that in one of the body's chief stress axes, that dominant smiles compared to other sorts of smile-type feedback really do change the physiological response of people who are receiving them as social feedback. And curious, why, why just men in this study? So the female menstrual cycle makes cortisol particularly difficult to reliably measure. There are certainly ways to do it. It just makes it such that we would have had to have many, many, many more participants. And if we find an effect in men, we almost certainly will find it in women. Women have been shown to be more sensitive to facial expressions, to be more accurate at decoding them. So our logic was that if we have limited resources and we have to take a first pass at this question that hasn't been addressed really by anyone, we should try to find it in men, because if we do find it in men, we'll probably be underestimating the effect in general. It's probably the case that women are even more responsive to these sorts of signals. So if I want to get under somebody's skin, I should practice my dominant smirky smile. I, as a scientist, do not want to condone that answer, but that is one interpretation. <laughs> Let me ask you this. When you're walking through campus now, when you see people smiling, is it hard to not see the world through the lens of your research now and, and kind of make out and evaluate everyone's smiles? Or The signals that we have on our faces and in our bodies more generally, they don't map one-to-one on what we're feeling. So it's not as if there's a perfect correlation between what's on our face that means 100% that we feel this way. And if that were the case, then it wouldn't be something that we studied. So when we, when we interpret these signals in the world, we're making guesses and saying, in general, this is associated with this other thing, which in some ways does make it even harder, right? When you're walking down the street and you see an affiliative smile or maybe a dominant smile. Are these smiles different enough, you think, that we should have I mean, you, you have different names for them, but socially, do you think, would it be helpful if we had different names for them? So I think that people do have concepts of what they are, what they do, and how they make us feel. I think we just don't have a particular word for exactly what it is. But we do have some words. We have smirk, sneer. We have an intuitive sort of conception that not all smiles are nice. That's Jared Martin. Jared, will you stick around so we can chat some more at the end of the show? Of course. Our next guest began thinking about the causes of severe morning sickness way back in 1999. And now, more than 20 years later, she's offered us a glimpse into the genes of people who suffer from a debilitating condition known as hyperemesis gravidarum. Marlena Faiso, welcome to Undisciplined. Hello. Thank you for having me. Marlena, this research has its genesis in a personal tragedy for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is not a smiling story. Um, I, back in 1999, had a severe nausea and vomiting of pregnancy called hyperemesis gravidarum, where I was so ill that I could not move without vomiting for 10 weeks. Um, I was completely bedridden and basically just had to stare at a wall. I couldn't keep anything down. I was put on a feeding tube and... Uh, Eventually, the baby died in the second trimester. So after that, I, since I'm a scientist, I started looking into what was known about it, and there was very little known, so I decided to focus on it as a research topic. And first, I had to 
easy if it ran in families, so I partnered with the Hyperemesis Education and Research Foundation, and we uh, worked together to recruit women with HG and answer the question about whether it ran in families, and we did find that it ran in families. For example, there's a 17-fold increased risk of having it if your sister has it, and so that provides support for a genetic component to nausea and vomiting in pregnancy and hyperemesis. And this this affects a lot of women, right? Tens of thousands? Most women have some form of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, about 70 to 90 percent, but hyperemesis is at the very severe end of the spectrum, so the worst 2 percent have it. Um, there's about 285,000 emergency department visits per year to treat this condition. And your research suggests an excess of a blood-borne protein. Growth differentiation factor 15 is the likely cause. How did you go about the process of identifying that route? I partnered with the personal genetics company, 23andMe, and they put questions into their surveys along with collecting the DNA of women. And by a couple of years ago, they had over 50,000 women that they had genotyped and also had information about the level of nausea that they had in their pregnancies. So from that We had two uh, scans, one that compared the very ends of the clinical spectrum, so from women with no nausea to women with hyperemesis or women that were hospitalized. And from that, two genes came up, GDF15 and another gene, IGFBP7. And then we did a separate one on basically on morning sickness where we just looked at different levels from no nausea to the severe end. And we also found that the uh, strongest association was with that same gene that you just said, GDF15, that codes for uh, the GDF15 protein. This was not published in this study, but we looked then at the protein levels in women with hyperemesis, and we found that they are much higher uh, in women with hyperemesis than in women without hyperemesis. It's very interesting because this protein has already been shown to be involved in the development of the placenta. It's turned on at very high levels, even in normal uh, pregnancies in the placenta, and then uh, gets into the bloodstream and goes to the nausea and vomiting center of the brain and suppresses appetite, or in the case of hyperemesis, there's so much of it that it causes this nausea and vomiting. You mentioned uh, your partnership with 23andMe, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, personal genetics has really opened some big windows for people who study human genes and what they do. This I mean, this this revolution has to have uh, really changed the way that people like you do what they do, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a phenomenal company. They're doing tons of great work by basically outsourcing people who are getting their uh, genetics done that are answering these surveys. So it's really the public that's helping us answer these questions. It's it's really brilliant. Now, potentially, can we now test for this ahead of pregnancy so that women can factor the potential of having this condition into their family planning decisions? So 23andMe looks at common genetic changes. So basically, these are common variations that occur around uh, specific genes. And so they just increase the risk. So if you have this variant that we found uh, and you find that you do in 23andMe, it just means you have an increased risk of having normal nausea and vomiting compared to no nausea and an even greater risk of having extreme nausea compared to normal nausea. 
but it doesn't mean that definitely if you have one of these common variants that you're going to or not going to have it. So um, it can't quite be used for that type of prediction, but what it does tell us is that these points to uh, these proteins that are involved, and now we can start looking at making diagnostic tests for hyperemesis based on the protein levels and prediction tests and um, hopefully therapies. And that was going to be my next question. Is there potentially down the road some pharmaceutical that could target that protein? Yes. So this is really fascinating. Um, Actually, the same protein, GDF15, that uh, is involved in nausea and vomiting and hyperemesis is also the cause of cachexia. And cachexia is the disease that causes death in 20% of cancer patients. It's basically has very similar symptoms to hyperemesis. Um, people are unable to eat anymore and they have muscle wasting and they can't eat or drink and eventually they die. So that same protein is upregulated in people with cachexia. And so, you know, hyperemesis is not a big target for drug companies, but cachexia is. So uh, companies are already making drugs to target this protein to treat cachexia, and they've already shown great promise in restoring weight and appetite in animal models. So they should work as, as long as they're safe in pregnancy. That's the big question. So that could be down the road. Human trials could be down the road then. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they'll be in cachexia patients, cancer patients, and non-pregnant patients first. But just like most of the drugs that are used for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, they will eventually probably be tested after they are tested for cachexia. And what's really also very interesting is that the reverse is being developed as well. So the protein GDF15 is being developed by drug companies as an appetite suppressant for weight loss, which is kind of ironic. So they're basically giving um, planning on giving obese people this same protein that causes nausea and vomiting, obviously in lower amounts, to try to suppress appetite. Wow. You know, there's something else here that goes beyond whether we can address this problem in one way or another, and that's a reason. When someone suffers in this way, when someone loses a baby or goes through a, a pregnancy that's just so hard the lack of any reason can be really debilitating, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is one of the worst parts of it for these women is not validating their symptoms. And a lot of doctors, unfortunately, have this sort of misogynistic nonsense theory that it's all in the woman's head. And so now we have something that actually shows this is not in the woman's head. And there is really something very wrong here in women with HG. There's over 100 women in my study that have had to uh, have a therapeutic termination of a planned and wanted baby specifically because of HG, which is really a heartbreaking but necessary choice for some women. So they suffer unbearable grief because of this, and they've written me now after this is published saying that the study really has given them and their families validation that they needed to show that they really didn't have a choice. That's Marlena Faiso. Marlena, are you ready for a chat about something a little bit different? Sure. <laughs> okay. So, Marlena, you were just sitting in listening to my conversation with Jared about smiles and what they really mean. Did it spark an idea or a question in your head? 
Yeah, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but one of the things that I find in common with both our studies is that people often think both nausea and vomiting pregnancy and smiling are kind of evolutionary conserved factors that are often thought to be unique to humans. And that is actually not the case for uh, nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. It does occur in animals. And so I was wondering what you thought about that with respect to smiles. Do animals smile? Yeah, we've actually thought about this question a lot. So if you if you take an approach to facial expression or just behavior that we do, which is called a social functional approach, we argue that there are signals in the world that have a function in the social world. They help us do things. Very germane to that argument is to trace back those functions as an evolutionarily conserved mechanism across at least the primates. I mean, I, I don't want to anthropomorphize animals, but you do see very similar facial configurations in similar contexts for closely related primates. It's difficult to say that they're doing the same thing, but it is not difficult to say that similar socio-ecological factors shaped the evolution of related species. So we've made arguments like that in in some of our papers, but I, I completely agree. It's not as if human beings just had these things come up out of nowhere that we just spontaneously created them. Is it possible, guys, that there's a gene for smiling? That's also an interesting question, and that was a question that I had for Marlena. There are genes that are related to smiling. I'm not a geneticist, but I do know that uh, people are looking at it, and it, it would make sense if there are individual differences that are related to social behavior. So my question, actually, for Marlena was, what are these women who have such a, an awful thing happen to them? What do they have in common, at least correlationally? Beyond that, are they also people who are more prone to experience anxiety or are there other just like social behavioral factors that might be somehow related or um, I'm not calling them causes, but maybe symptoms in this constellation of things that are related to HG? Well, actually, it's, it's an unfortunate bias that people think that women with this have some pre-existing psychological component that brings this on. And I I really don't think that is the case or it's definitely, you know, not related to these genes that we found. But afterwards, there are definite psychosocial consequences of going through this. So like 18% of the women that we have studied have full criteria post-traumatic stress symptoms following an HG pregnancy. That's especially the case for women who have had it for all the way until term because it becomes a form of really starvation in pregnancy, prolonged starvation. It, It really seems to be that women of all types and social classes and um, environments all over the world get this. So I don't know of specific personality types, if that's what you're asking, but we haven't seen that at least. But this protein, GDF15, is involved in appetite. So it would be something to look at to see if people's food preferences could be related. In one of our studies, diet was related to having symptoms going longer into pregnancy. So I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it could be related to the appetite preferences coded for by the uh, the genes that we found. Jared and Marlena, there's, I think, um, so often women are really expected to be happy during pregnancy, right? This is like our, our social expectation. They're they're expected to grin and bear it. And I know, Marlena, you mentioned earlier that a lot of people, a, a lot of women who go through these really terrible 
complications during their pregnancies are somehow told that it's just in their head. What's the promise uh, of research like what Marlena has done on the psychology of women who know maybe they don't, they don't have to grin and bear it so much? Jared? It's a really important question. I want to first clarify um, the question that I asked Marlena. I wasn't trying to imply that there might be some sort of psychosocial or psychological factor that cause a woman to go through that, because I, I do certainly believe that there's so much in our bodies that we can't control. And it, it's particularly unfortunate that someone would have to go through that. I have some colleagues who study postpartum depression, and I, I, I don't really have a good answer for you. I think that it's important to study the things that I think people take for granted. And one of the things that people take for granted is that pregnancy is, a, is wonderful and happy and just joyous and always a simple thing. In the same way that people think smiles are, are always just positive, right? It's, it's just not the case. So there is some research showing that if you smile through the pain, they do better with the pain. So there is some sort of insight into our bodies changing our psychological experiences. I wouldn't say that I have any way to, um, at least with the research that I have, give any sort of insight into pregnancy or difficult real-life issues that Marlena studies. But I can, at least as a, as a human, say that it's extremely important that we start continuing to, to look at that road. And Marlena, at least anecdotally, you're, I gather you're hearing from a lot of women who, who are expressing that knowing this cause uh, is giving them hope and confidence and uh, validation about what they've been through. Yes. A lot of women, about over a third, decide not to have any more children after the experience of an HD pregnancy. So I've heard from a lot of them saying this gives them hope that they can one day have another child and you know things like that. They also are hoping that information gets to their doctors and nurses so that they can be more understanding because some women are just sent home and told that this is just normal. And with hyperemesis, it's really not. And they, they need the medical community to take them seriously. Well, it sounds like uh, it's that's starting to happen thanks to your research. Marlena Faiso, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined today. Thank you for having me. And Jared Martin, thank you. Thanks for having me as well. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.